welcome to the Hungry Authors Podcast. A hungry author is someone who is, quite simply, hungry for it. They're willing to do what it takes to achieve their writing dreams. If that resonates, you're in the right place. I'm Ariel. And I'm Liz. We're two book coaches, editors, and writers here to help you get there. We interview experts and chat about all things publishing and writing to educate and build a community of successful writers, whatever that means to you. Welcome. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Hungry Authors Podcast. Today, we are doing an episode that's part of a series about getting published. You can go back and listen to the episode from last week to get an overview of what we're going to be talking about. But the main point of today's episode is about your book idea. And I should say, too, we're joined by our good friend Kent Sanders, who we'll introduce here in a minute and talk about how we got connected. But I wanted to start with a little background. We polled our audience recently and asked everyone if they were interested in writing a book or not. And overwhelmingly, 95% of you, something like that, said yes. And then when we asked you what has stopped you, the majority by far said, said that it was something around your idea. Either you had too many ideas or you weren't sure if your idea was any good. So that's where we're starting with your idea where every writer has to start when they want when they want to write a book. All right. So, Kent is our dear friend, fellow ghostwriter, fellow podcaster. Um Kent, why don't you jump in and, and introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Well, Ariel and Liz, thanks for having me on the show. I've it's been really exciting to see your journey. As you have gotten into this podcast, and I know you're working on a book and all the cool things that you guys are doing, in addition to all the things that you're doing for in your business. So before I say anything about myself, I just want to say huge thumbs up for doing this. A lot of people want to start a podcast. They want to dive into the book world, but a lot of people don't do it because it does take work. It takes overcoming the fear of all the processes and all the other stuff that goes along with it. So great job. So virtual uh-huh. pat on the back, high five. Thank you. Whatever the kids are doing these days, some <laughs> sort of sign of affirmation, whatever that is. <laughs> uh, I'm still stuck in the 80s and 90s, so I have no idea. Um, <laughs> so what I do is a couple different things. My main gig, so to speak, is, as you mentioned, I'm a ghostwriter, which for those who are listening who aren't really familiar with that, which, you know, if you've hung around these two amazing ladies, you probably know what that is. But just in case, uh, a ghostwriter is somebody who writes a book's and other content on behalf of somebody else. So we write this stuff, other people's names typically go on that. And it's kind of like being somebody's voice, so to speak. And I really love that aspect of my, of my business. It's a lot of fun. And the other thing that I do is I do stuff around this concept of the daily writer. So I have a podcast called the daily writer. It's actually a daily podcast. I'm not recommending anybody does a daily podcast unless you really feel committed to that format. Personally, I love it. I don't think it's for everybody, but I I really love doing the podcast and both of you have been on the show as well. And then I run a membership community called the Daily Writer Club. Got a book coming out later this year called The Daily Writer, which is a book of daily meditations, uh, a year's worth of meditations for writers. So I love working with writers, training, equipping, sometimes giving them a little a little pat on the back and or a kick in the seat of the pants, whatever the case might be. But uh, I just, I love books and writing and really love what you guys are doing with the Hunger Authors concept. It's so cool and uh, I'm excited to be here. So that was a really long answer to your question, but here we are. 
No, that's perfect. And um, listeners will also recall in our very first ever episode of the Hungry Authors podcast, we told the story of how Liz and I got connected to do this whole project because Kent encouraged us to. So we are just all, it's all coming back together. Just the three of us in one space right now is very cool. So like the Avengers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, you, you mentioned kind of your career as a writer and how you support other writers. And honestly, I have to say the daily writer podcast is one of my favorites. I make an effort, especially to listen to all of your interviews because you have such great and interesting people that you, you talk to about the creative process. So I always feel like I learned something just kind of new and interesting and from a different perspective. Thank you. I do too. I, I learn stuff from my guests every single time. Which is one of the reasons that I think a podcast can be so valuable is because it's kind of like getting free coaching from somebody. You know, I, yeah. I kind of operate on the principle that most people are just generally smarter than me. And there's always something that I can learn from them. And um, I think podcast interviews are fantastic because you're always connecting with people and learning from what they're doing. So, but thank you. I appreciate the kind words. And this whole conversation, the reason why we really wanted to chat today with you about idea is because you and I were emailing recently. I had referred a client to you and we were talking about kind of what this client needs. A lot of it is support around his idea. Mm-hmm. And you said to me, you wrote in your email, the worst thing we can do is help someone write the wrong book. And that just stuck out at me. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're so right. But also how do we do that? And how do we know what the wrong book is? So can you say more about the thinking behind that idea and, and kind of what you meant? Sure. So and by the way, that concept is not original with me. That actually came from my ghostwriting coach and mentor. His name is Nick Pavlidis. He has a very successful ghostwriting agency. He's been doing this a long time. And he says that oftentimes, uh, so I'm part of his ghostwriting mastermind currently, but I've heard him say that a number of times. And I just I thought that was really great advice. And so I actually tell that to my prospective clients or people that I'm working with as a coach or, or whatever it is. So the main idea with this, this concept of, of not writing the wrong book or you know, kind of the converse of that is writing the correct book is that you can really create anything that you want these days with self-publishing options, with hybrid options, traditional publishing. We have a lot of options as authors. So the issue is not really, can I create a book out of XYZ idea. The issue is, does that idea really belong in the form of a book and does it advance my goals as a person? And I think that the thing that sometimes we get caught up in as writers is that we love books. We love writing. I mean, on the shelf behind me, not on the, on the really pathetically small bookshelves, because I'm in a new office, I don't have all my stuff in here yet. I've got books at home. I've got shelves and shelves of books. I've got books in front of me here that you can't see. Both of you have scads of books in your life. Ariel, you've got a shelf of books behind you. So we love books and we love writing, but a lot of times we don't connect those books to our our larger goals in life. So I think for us with our own books and for clients, if we're doing ghostwriting or coaching, we have to connect those books to what goals they're trying to achieve in life. Because unless you do that, you could write a book that you invest a lot of time and energy and resources into that doesn't really help you achieve the things that you want in life. For example, if you're trying to build a specific kind of business, whatever that business is, if you write a book that is going off on a totally different direction, then you're really going to you're going to be chasing that book for for probably a few years. 
You're going to write it. You're going to have help with it probably on some level. You're going to have it edited and published, whether it's indie publishing or traditional or hybrid, whatever that is. And then you're going to need to market it. You're probably going to be doing podcast interviews and other assets around the book. But if that book doesn't really help you achieve your bigger goals in life, then it, it it's not that it's a waste of time because I don't think a book is ever a waste of time because books are kind of magic. But I think if you connect a book to your larger goals in life or in business, it can have way more impact because now the book is serving your overall life direction because a book doesn't exist in a vacuum. You're going to have to put time and energy and resources into that book. So if you're going to do a book, it may as well help you get more of what you want in life, whether that's building a business, putting your legacy in, into the form of a book, whatever those goals are. So that that's kind of why I say that is because I hate for people to invest a lot of energy into something that isn't really important to them just because they have an idea for something and they feel this internal pressure to craft a book out of it. That's great. And I love that you started with goals because that's usually what where Ariel and I start too. Mm -hmm. When we talk about finding your idea is starting with your goals. And because uh, like you mentioned, there are so many different ways to publish. There are so many outcomes that you might want. A lot of people in our audience uh, have responded that they want to be traditionally published, which is great. But the way that you drill down on an idea and the things that you might need to consider will be different than if you want to self-publish or you have a different goal. If, if you just want to write a legacy book or a memoir about your life to pass down to people and your family and friends, which is amazing, then you have different goals and you won't need to consider things like marketability and genre and research. And so, you know, when we talk to authors who are struggling with, should I write about this or this? It always comes back to goals. What do you want? Is this in support of a business that you have? Do you want a career as an author? Do you, are you aiming to get a big advance or are you aiming to be published by a, a mm -hmm. top, a big five house, something like that? All of those are fine goals but you will need to make different considerations. And sometimes I don't wanna say compromise, but you, you will need to refine in different ways because there will be different parties at stake to some degree, you know? Absolutely, I totally agree with that. I think that's really important advice. So what would you say, Kent, to someone who comes to you? Because this happens often to me where someone comes to me and they say, you know, I know the book that people want me to write is X. I know that people want me to write a how-to book about the thing that I'm an expert on. That's what they're always asking me about. That would be the low hanging fruit. But what I actually want to write is this story that is completely unrelated to anything mm -hmm. that I do. And it's the thing that keeps me up at night and it's on my heart. And I just, I need to share the story from my life. I always feel conflicted in that moment because I'm like, oh, as a past acquisitions editor, someone who has been very close to the traditional publishing world, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I know why they're asking you to write the book. They're asking you to write because mm -hmm. it is so aligned with everything else you're doing. It would be so much easier to market and sell. Yes. And yet I also believe that your heart has to be in it. And if your heart's not in it, I don't know if it is the right book. So how would you respond to that? So I'm kind of a movie geek as evidenced by, so if people are listening to this on audio, obviously you can't see anything behind me in my office. So I've got movie posters here. I've got a John Wayne poster, 
Uh, it's actually his 1956 movie, The Searchers, which I love. My dad loved Western. So it's kind of like a nod to my dad. On the other wall, I've got a poster of Citizen Kane, which is, in my opinion, the greatest film of all time from the early 1940s. It's a wonderful movie. If you've never seen it, you got to watch Citizen Kane. It's amazing. But I mentioned movies because there's a really interesting principle a lot of times that you hear directors talk about in the movie business when it comes to how they decide what movies they're going to direct. And I think it's it's kind of a similar principle for authors and helping us to decide what books we should write. So a lot of times you hear directors talk about, well, I did one for the studio and I did one for me. Basically, it's their way of saying, I did a bigger budget movie that's really geared toward an audience. It's geared toward making more money. Maybe it's a more commercial project. Maybe it's a Marvel thing or a comic book thing or some kind of, of thing that's really like more for the masses. But then I followed that up with a more personal film that the budget wasn't as high on, the expectations weren't as high, but it was something that was really personally important to me. Now, what's interesting though, is a lot of times those smaller kind of movies are actually more successful than, than the ones that they create for the masses. But in the end, you don't really know ultimately what's going to work. But I like that approach because essentially it's saying sometimes you do a book because it's a good business decision. And it may not be the thing that naturally gets your heart racing like other more personal things do, but there's no reason you can't do both of those things. This is why I'm a big advocate of doing a lot of books and having all things being equal of having shorter books. So you're not writing this big 250 page book that you're going to sink three years of your life into, and you're going to be totally exhausted and you won't do another book for 10 years. I think it's better all things being equal again to do shorter books, you can do more of them because all of your books are going to promote each other. And over time, you're going to have more of those things out there that it's a lot of cross-pollination and so forth. I don't see any reason why you can't do both of those things. You just have to decide in the moment, what are you most excited about? What feels more urgent to you? Mm-hmm. What are people asking for? Where are your opportunities? And mm-hmm. I'll give you a perfect example. So my next book that I'm going to have out here in probably two, three months is actually a book on ghostwriting. Not many ghostwriters put out books on ghostwriting. It's kind of like almost goes against what the whole ghostwriting thing is about in a way, because ghostwriters oftentimes don't talk about the processes. But I thought, wouldn't it be fun to put out a book helping my prospective clients understand how does ghostwriting work? What is it about? Why you should use a ghostwriter? Why is it helpful to have a book out there in the world? How much does it cost? How does the process work? Blah, blah, blah. So that's going to be my next book. Is it the one that I'm most passionate about necessarily? Not necessarily, but it is one that I feel is really important for my business and also to promote the value of ghostwriting in general, because I don't want to just promote my business. I want to promote ghostwriters in general. And I also Mm -hmm. want to give literary agents. I want to give editors. I want to give graphic designers a tool they can give to their prospective clients too. That helps them to see, hey, you know what? It's not only okay to use a ghostwriter, it's actually really, really smart if you have the time and resources to hire somebody. So I want to support all the other people who are working with book clients by putting a book out there on the value of ghostwriting. So that's my next project. It's a little short book that people can read really fast. Then I'm going to move on to something that's probably something I'm more personally excited about. But the ghostwriting book is just a business decision. I'm excited to read that book. And I like the advice of writing a lot of books and writing shorter books, because that does help to take the pressure off of this book. I think when authors 
think about their first book, they put so much pressure on it has to be perfect. And it has to be everything that I want it to say in this one thing. And oh my gosh, if I don't say it exactly right, and then I'm a failure for the rest of my life, there is so much pressure on this first book. And I do really, I appreciate the advice and the reminder that we can take a step back. We can have a lot long-term perspective that says, I'm going to publish lots of books on a variety of things. I am a multi-passionate person. I can have a multi, I don't know, multi-passionate oeuvre of books that I have worked on. Yeah. You know, one of the people in Hollywood, and again, I'm kind of a movie and TV show geek. One of the people in Hollywood that I really like is JJ Abrams, because I understand the criticism of his stuff, which is like, he's good at starting stories, but he's terrible at wrapping up stories. And I actually agree with that assessment because the rise of Skywalker was a terrible movie, visually interesting, but story-wise there's nobody who would say it was a good story. It just wasn't. Yeah. My husband is not happy with that one. But one of the things that I really love about him as a business person is he always has a lot of things going on. He's done TV shows, movies. He's got a big production company. So he's got his hands in a variety of things. And I think that's a good model for those of us who want to write books or do podcasts or whatever. It's good to have your hands in a few different things so that you're not putting so much pressure on any one thing like, oh, I spent 10 years writing this book and it's got to be really successful or I'm just going to hate myself for the rest of my life. You know, what a terrible way to live. You know, let's, mm -hmm. let's step back and maybe take the pressure off of ourselves a little bit. So nothing is, nothing is resting on any one single thing that we have that's part of our business. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's almost like, I mean, obviously you can start wherever you want to, but going back to Ariel's example of, let's say everyone's asking you for something because you're known for something that's mm -hmm. again, like she said, the low hanging fruit, right? Especially if you want to tr traditionally publish they're all going to want you to write that book. That's yeah. the easy book to start with. Yeah. And I would argue maybe the best book to start with, because like you said, it's, you know, like the, the director example, rather do one for the masses. And then it's almost like you kind of earn the right to do what you want. Right. That's why Daniel Radcliffe does so many from the outside might be considered random roles in small movies. He did Harry right. Potter. He can do whatever he wants now. Financially, creatively, he has earned that right to do. Even Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday's on record a few times talking about how Conspiracy, the book that he wrote many, many books into his career that nobody read. No offense to Ryan Holiday. No offense, but nobody read it. Nobody read it. I read it. Okay. Did you really? I love it. Did. Yes. Well, it's his favorite. He said it's his favorite and it's his worst selling book. And it's the one. No, I mean, I just like searched it on Amazon, I had to go through all the other, like if you're just scrolling, like if you just type in Ryan Holiday, you, you don't add conspiracy, you don't search for the book specifically. You have to scroll through all the other translations of all his other books before you even right. get to conspiracy, which is oh like three goodness. pages into his, anyway. Wow. It's his favorite book, but he earned the right to write it, right? He, exactly. he earned the right to do whatever he wants. So yeah, of course, there's a lot of considerations to make. You can start wherever you want technically, but if you've got something that you are known for, that you are good at, that people want from you, it's a good place to start. And then if you've got it a is. passion project, you know, you can always come back to that. See, I think, I think this whole idea of passion and desire and excitement, I think it's grossly overrated. Mm. But I want to explain what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes, you know, as as writers, we and really we're, we're artists, you know, writing is a form of art. 
and all artists struggle with this, this balance of commerce and creativity. You know, we have things that we want to put out there that make money. They support our family. It's a product. We can develop assets around those products, courses, or speaking or whatever. But then we also have the creative side. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget why we're doing this in the first place. And the reason that we write is for people. We're writing to serve people. Yes, writing is an act of creative expression, and it should be to some degree. But if you want to have a real legitimate business around your writing and your books, you have to think, how is this actually solving problems for people? How is this helping people? If you're a fiction person, is this actually entertaining people? Or am I just writing some story that is important to me, but isn't really structured correctly? It's not marketed correctly. doesn't have a good cover design. You know, you have to think about yourself as a business person, as well as an artist and a creative person. So if people are asking you about a certain book and they, they keep coming to you with the same questions, my goodness, that is magical because that means you have something of value to add to them. So uh, my personal opinion, if people are continually, and I think the key is continually, it's not like just your mom at Easter dinner says, I think you should write a book about this, you know, or your cousin or your uncle or something. If people are continually asking you the same kinds of questions, that is a major sign from the universe that you probably should do a book around that. And it's a way for you to serve people, to solve their problems, to improve their lives which isn't that why we do all this in the first place anyway. Mm -hmm. But I think that's, you know, we we're making the assumption right now that our listener has people coming to them and saying, yes, I want, you know, we want this book. We want this book. A Mm -hmm. lot of people don't necessarily have that audience yet or haven't received that kind of feedback and they still want to write something. Mm -hmm. And those people do often come to me seeking validation of their idea. And they say, like, is my book idea good? And I'm always, I always kind of pause and ask them, well, what do you mean by good? What does that mean to you? And so we kind of have a discussion about that, but I think what they are asking usually in in most cases and kind of what we were getting to is, is it marketable? Is it going to sell? Will other people want it? And how do I know other people will want it if I haven't received that kind of input and requests for it yet necessarily? So I'm, I'm, curious, how do you kind of coach people kind of in that situation through, through designing a marketable book idea? So there's a thing in the business, and that's a really great point and question, by the way. So there's a thing in the business world called doing a minimum viable product, which basically means creating the, a version of your product that is, it's kind of, it kind of like has the, the lowest amount of features in it, it's the least expensive thing for you to produce, but it's a test product for you to see, do pe- are people going to respond to this? Like sometimes in the course creation world, people will put up a sales page and they'll sell the course before they actually create the course, which is a really great idea because you don't want to create this big course and then discover, oh, nobody was actually asking for this course. You know, that's kind of a bad idea. We can do the same thing with books. And a couple of ways to do that are, I would actually not start with a book. If you don't have any audience and you don't have any feedback on your idea, instead of writing a whole book and putting it out there, I would start with doing blog posts on the concept, doing social media posts, maybe even starting a podcast and using that to test out ideas. Now, the cool thing about a podcast is that you can get immediate feedback based on just looking at your downloads. Same thing with a blog post, really, you get feedback because you can see what posts people are looking at. So I think testing out the waters a little bit is a really, really good idea because you might have something you're excited about, 
But if you continuously put it out there and people don't seem to respond to it, or maybe you get bored with it after six months, maybe that's a clue that you should shift directions a little bit, or, or sometimes maybe just tweak it a little bit. So I think there's some ways you can test out these ideas without feeling like you have to jump into the deep end by doing a book off the bat. That's perfect. I love that. And we advocate for that always too. If someone comes to me and they've got an idea and I ask them what they've done around that idea or if they've received any feedback and they haven't, the only, the idea has only ever lived in their brain and I might be the only person they've ever said it to. Doesn't mean that, that that's necessarily a bad idea. It might be a fantastic idea, but it gives me pause because I'm not an expert on, on, on ideas either. So I yeah. can't give you the validation that you're looking for. I can help you find comp titles, which we can talk about in a minute. I can tell you to go on Amazon and look at three-star reviews of different books and see if you know there might be a, a hole in, in the market somewhere. But in general, I'm not a forecaster. I'm not a, you know, totally. I, I, I'm not your ideal reader even potentially. I can't tell you that. But your ideal reader can. And you can't find them unless you're out there practicing in public somehow, you know? Gosh, that is like the best. I, I feel like I want to take the audio clip and just like put it everywhere. We could do that. Like you have to be out there practicing in public. You've got to talk to actual humans. So just this <laughs> yes. morning I had coffee with somebody I met with on LinkedIn. I literally came in here to my office. I had about 20 minutes before we were doing this interview. Somebody I had not met before. And there's something magical that happens whenever you talk to actual human beings, whether it's on a Zoom call or even better meeting in person, and you're talking about your ideas and you're hearing their story, you just get so many, so much feedback and so many great ideas from that. Mm -hmm. So if somebody has, has an idea for a book, just go out to coffee with a few people who you think might be interested in it or who might kind of be in your target audience potentially, and just share these ideas with them or do a little bit of teaching on it or, or whatever. I think you'll be really surprised at the awesome feedback that people have. Yeah. Why do you think people don't already do that? Like, that seems like a pretty natural thing. I think when we say it, people are like, oh yeah, I guess, you know, duh, we should do that. And yet we don't. And why do you think that is? Oh gosh, that's, that's probably a really loaded question. I think most of us probably are, we would label ourselves as introverts. Most yeah. writers I think are, in, are introverted or partly so that's one thing, you know, we only have so much emotional energy for human interaction. So my son is really an introvert. You know, he's like, man, I've had too much human interaction today. And I'm like, I totally get it. I really do. So that's one reason. But I also think there's something really dangerous that's happened in, in the world over the past five or 10 years. And that is we have defaulted to digital communication as kind of our go-to mode for, for human contact. So in other words, like when we go out to coffee with somebody or when we just get on a, a phone, a phone call, you know, a phone call. Wow. Like that's so 1990s. Um, but a lot of great things can happen when we just talk to people instead of doing email and social media and messaging and all those things. And those things are great, but actually interacting with real life flesh and blood people in person, if you can do it. There's still something really, really important about that. And that's something I think a lot of introverted writers miss yeah. is because we'll put a social media post up or we'll do a podcast or we'll do a blog post. And we kind of anticipate all this response and sometimes it's not there. Yeah. But when you kind of go back to old school ways of talking to actual flesh and blood people, 
there's something radically magical, I think, that, that happens because mm-hmm. you just get nuanced feedback. You get ideas. Sometimes you get collaborative opportunities. All that's yeah. really, really important. You know, it's what we do. Ultimately, we're in sales. Yeah. We're all salespeople. We're selling our ideas. We're selling our books. We're selling some kind of transformation or entertainment. All of us are doing that. No matter if you're selling anything, you're a salesperson, you're in business. And the sooner we can embrace that and accept the fact that we are selling something, we, we have something of value to offer to people. And we want to connect with real flesh and blood people to, to think through those ideas and, and sharpen ourselves. I think the sooner we can embrace those concepts, the, the more effective that will be. Yeah. And I would submit too, this might be complete projection, but having worked with lots and lots of sensitive writers, introverted writers, I think it's also true that you can keep believing that your idea is a good idea if you don't tell anybody. Yeah. They tell you it's not a good idea. Yeah. Yes. I know I've done that. I've had plenty of ideas that lived and died in my head that I just like to keep on their pretty little shelf because I'd rather believe that they keep on believing that it's a good idea than someone hurt my feelings and tell me it's not a good idea. Now, again, we let's go back, you know, rewind and listen to our discussion from 10 minutes ago about what a good idea is. It doesn't have anything to do with you or, you know, how valuable you are, how smart you are. And, you know, there's lots of things to consider there. But I would also say as word of encouragement that most of the time when someone comes to me and they have an idea that they want to know is, quote, good, even if I think by way of, you know, research or whatever we, we walk through in the process, even if I come to the conclusion that, you know, I don't think this is it. I think you need to refine this somehow if you want to meet meet your goals. It It never is scrap it. You know, it's almost always like a pivot. Let's pivot. Let's find a different angle. You want to write about grief or something from, and this is your idea. Okay, well, let's stick with grief. That's a universal theme. You've got experience in that or whatever. Everyone relates to it. But this particular thing you want to do with it, either it's not going to work for whatever reason. Let's find a different angle. Let's find something that hasn't been said before. Let's position it in a different way. It's almost always refining and pivoting. You know, I would, um, I would argue that most people you could stick within the same topic that you want to write about almost always. You just need to tweak it and refine it and do a little bit more research. And it might mean, you know, again, I don't want to use the word compromise in some way, but, um, but sometimes compromise a little bit between your creativity and the marketability and what, you know, what your editor might be suggesting. Um, but almost never do you get the feedback that like, this is, you know, completely scrap it. There is no audience for this. And this topic is just irrelevant. You know, it's, it's almost never that it's almost Mm -hmm. always a small pivot. Yeah. That's really good advice. So everybody listen to your editors. If you have Lizard Ariel as an editor, listen to them. They know what they're doing. Well, I think the theme that I'm hearing here is that we should experiment with our ideas and yeah. really hold them with an open hand, which is really hard to do because I get attached to my beautiful little idea butterflies as well. And it's hard to think about them, you know, maybe not being as beautiful to everyone else as I think they are. 
there's a lot of fear that comes with just the idea itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a lot of courage, I think, and having the right community and having people that you feel safe with to mm-hmm. experiment with and to test those ideas out. Yeah. Do we want to get granular and just riff a little bit on what you in your own mind, we can, we can each take a turn. What qualifies a good idea in your mind? What are you looking for in a good, in a good or big idea from somebody? Let's see if we can't give people Mm. some parameters. Boy, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I I think it depends on what the idea is. Mm -hmm. Um, The most important thing. Okay. I actually, I'm going to give you one example now that you mentioned this. So I'll tell you this super quick story, then I'll explain why I'm telling the story. Last year, started working on her book, and we kind of agreed on a certain outline and a certain way we were going to approach this topic. It's a topic she's very, very passionate about. She's known for this one thing. This is going to be the kind of thing where she's putting her heart and soul into this one single book, which she's going to promote probably for the next five or 10 years. It's that kind of a book. This is like a platform book, exactly what we were talking about earlier. Like people are asking for it. She's an expert on this topic. The book is going to be great for her career and all that stuff. So we outlined the book. I finished a draft of the book. And then she comes back to me and says, well, I kind of want to like rethink this whole book, which is like the last thing that you want to hear as a ghostwriter. Oh my gosh. I so, live, it's terrible. Terrible. Yeah. And your, your stomach kind of drops and you're like, okay, <laughs> how am I going to handle this? So she's like, I, I think I want to rearrange like, like make some major rearrangements in the way that we're structuring this book and the way that we're doing it. And we had a very productive phone call and it turns out I was being a little overly dramatic in my own mind in, in the idea of, I kind of thought she wanted to trash a bunch of stuff that we had done and worked really hard on. That wasn't really the case. She just wants to rearrange some stuff in the book and maybe come at it from a different angle, which is totally cool. And I was talking with a friend of mine and kind of saying, you know, like, this is a little frustrating because actually it was really frustrating. I'm I'm underselling it. It was really frustrating in the moment. And he said, you know, there's something important you need to remember. And this was a good learning point for me. My friend said, you need to remember that as a writer, you might think that the best way to do a book is XYZ approach. But if the, the if the author is not super excited about it, then it's going to kill it. So even if you think, their approach isn't necessarily the best way to structure the book or to do it. If they're really excited about it, they're going to sell it. And they're going to be, the book's going to be way more successful because they love it. And at the end of the day, a lot of this is not really good or bad. It's just preference and how you tell a story or structure a book. And that's my point in sharing all that is that I, I look for not necessarily the idea, but also the passion that somebody has for it, the excitement that they have for their book. If they're really excited about it, that you can, you can work with excitement till the cows come home. Excitement is really, really critical. If somebody has a great idea, that's really marketable. Maybe it's a hot topic, but they're not really excited about it. That's going to kill it. So like the, the excitement and the enthusiasm factor to me is it's non-negotiable. Somebody has to be excited and interested in that idea enough that it's going to carry them through the project. Now we're going to refine it as we go along of course, but the excitement has to be there. That's really good. I love that. So I'll say, well, my tips primarily, I'll give all credit to Lucinda Halpern, who's a friend of mine. She's an agent in New York. So she taught me that most uh, good ideas or big ideas 
are a combination of a universal theme and your unique angle. So mm, that's, that's good. yeah, exactly. And, you, you know, she's an agent. So this is coming from the perspective of someone who's looking for something that's pretty marketable for a traditional publishing house. So um, this, you know, might not matter as much to you if you aren't as interested in that. But I would also argue that this makes any book good. And, and it doesn't have, you know, your unique angle doesn't have to be anything crazy. It might just be your voice, your perspective, your experience, totally. right? Like, you know, to take like a, a really popular example, um, like Atomic Habits, James Clear's book that's been on the mm -hmm. list for like, I don't know, years now. It's about habit building. How many books are there about habit building? Like yeah, a lot, a bunch, you know, um, but what's his unique angle? It's not you. It's your system. Mm -hmm. That's unique. No one has said that before. When it comes to habits, it's almost always about self-discipline and what you're doing wrong and what to do right. right. And, and sometimes, you know, it's about finding that, that like you can work within a topic that is been written about a decent amount. That's probably even good, right? That means there's an audience for this. Absolutely. But what do you have to say on it that hasn't been said before, you know, yeah. or at least hasn't been said in this way before or with this particular exactly. voice before, you know, there's been a lot of like Mark Manson and, and um, Jen Sincero. Um, we won't repeat their book titles on this podcast, but they sort of kicked off a whole genre of self-help. <laughs> that was like <laughs> Now you go to Barnes and Noble and it's like, they literally have tables where every title has profanity in it. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not a prude. It's not that. I'm just like, guys, right. seriously. Yeah. But like, hey, it works for them. So it feels whatever. gimmicky now, but yes. it was very groundbreaking yes. at the time when those books came out. It was it, it right. was shocking and it caught people's attention. And there's yeah. a reason that they that they use profanity in the title. It's almost like it, it wasn't just a gimmick, it was it was part of the core message of the book as well. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah. It was like those books, not, I, I don't mean this in any degrading way because I actually think both of them and, and, and most people in that category are, are fantastic writers. So Jen mm -hmm. Sincero and, and Mark Manson are both beautiful writers, but they're self-help books. There's a lot of overlap in the content there. Right. Totally. And so they weren't necessarily saying anything new, although Mark, Mark Manson, I think you can make a better case that he was, but Let's just say for sake of argument, they're not saying anything super new. Are they saying it in a new way? You mm -hmm. bet your title of buttons. that they are. You know what I mean? Like I'm not sure why are. I suddenly reverted to like the 1930s. You bet your buttons. <laughs> you know? I don't know what that's about. It's all um, about watching yeah. Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah, apparently I'm stuck a hundred years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're saying it in this new whatever cutting edge profane funny way targeted to a new audience let's say some of these classic self-help things that are very true but let's say them more casually to a, to a younger audience i don't know it's it's that sort of um finding something and, and and having your own spin on it that you know that that can make for a pretty salient idea yep. um yeah. And then of course, like finding, finding your audience. And sometimes you don't know what your idea is until you experiment with it. And people tell you what your good idea is. Yeah. And I think that when it goes back to the James Clear book, mm -hmm. 
you know, Atomic Habits, I mean, not only is that a great book and it's very clearly written, no, yeah. no mm -hmm. pun intended because his name is James Clear, mm -hmm. but he tested those ideas literally for years, built up yes. a massive email list, mm -hmm. developed all these great partnerships and with other people who promoted the book. So the marketing behind it was incredible. Yeah. But he had also so he'd also really refined these ideas over a long period of time and showed up with blog posts a time or two a week for years. So this I think a lot of people kind of wonder, like, how did this book become such a massive, gigantic bestseller? Well, not only is it I mean, the book is itself is really, really good and helpful, but the marketing behind it was incredible as well. Yeah. Yep. Ariel, what do you think makes for a good idea? Yeah, yeah I'm so curious, too. I was just listening to both of you and jotting down some of my my thoughts here because I have thought a lot about this for prescriptive nonfiction books, which is primarily what I work on. Yeah. I, I'm doing a lot of book proposals for prescriptive nonfiction books. I am now ghostwriting some prescriptive nonfiction books. That's kind of been my bread and butter. And I've been dipping my toe lately into memoir. So I do think what makes a really great prescriptive nonfiction book is going to be pretty different from what makes a great memoir. So I'll, mm -hmm. I'll start with prescriptive nonfiction. Um, I think it needs a distinct audience. I think you have to know, and we've, you know, we've talked about this throughout this conversation yeah. too, is that you need to know who your audience is and be very deeply in touch with their needs. And that brings me to my second point, number two, which is that it must solve a sticky problem, which can you, uh, you mentioned earlier that you have to be kind of directly addressing a problem that is so pervasive and, and big in their lives that it's like, it's the thing that keeps them up at night. It's the, the thing that they're like, I need help enough that, you know, I'm willing to go and spend like $30 potentially to mm -hmm. get help with this thing. And then Liz, to your point, I think it needs to provide a really novel solution. And this is one of the things that bothers me about a lot of self-help books that I see out there is that often the solution is like, be confident be courageous, just kind of, you know, be positive, think, think your way to whatever you want. And I'm always left frustrated at books like that. I'm like, no, give me some real meat to this. Give me a framework. Give me a series of actions. Give me something that I can do that is going to truly, truly help me think about something and take the right steps to solving that problem, whatever that core problem is. And then, you know, it has to be delivered in such a way that it feels like, oh, it that's like genius, of course. And I think that's the beauty of James Clear's book was that mm -hmm. he was able to deliver a pretty, we'll say old message, mm -hmm. <laughs> but deliver it with such clarity, again, puns on his name, deliver it with such clarity that it was like, oh, of course, genius, break these habits down into small pieces, tie them to other things we're already doing. Now I have those simple next steps that I'm looking for that will help me actually kind of move the needle on these yeah. things. So I think, you know, those, those are kind of the qualities that I would say make a great prescriptive nonfiction book for memoir. As I'm thinking about it, I think it has to be a truly exceptional story with truly wonderful writing, but I would say writing can be coached. Writing can be enhanced. You can work with a ghostwriter for the idea itself of a memoir. I know the, I'm thinking of the memoirs that get me the most excited and the, some of the memoirs that I've had the honor of being a part of, and they are truly exceptional 
stories to some extent. I'm I'm not going to share them here because I don't I didn't check with my authors ahead of time to get their permission, but I will say like Tara Westover's book Educated that is a truly exceptional story. And she's a fantastic writer. I don't know how much help she might've received. Um, but I do think that's a perfect example or like, you know, um, Cheryl Strayed with wild, truly exceptional story. Um, finding Chica by Mitch album, truly exceptional story that has kind of those common human elements to it, but it really is like not, not the everyday experience for sure. So those are the memoirs that excite me the most. Mm. What do you all think about those? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I was thinking about memoir because I was thinking about about my favorites too and seeing if I could find any exceptions, you know, like memoir. Because a lot of the people that that I know that want to write memoir and, and likely some listening to this podcast in, in our um, audience – they probably don't have what we would consider an exceptional story. Um, so I would say, and you made this point too, that the writing always matters a lot. I mean, honestly, like Glennon Doyle, Melton, wait, just Doyle now. I've seen it both ways. She doesn't have a particularly interesting story. I mean, her husband cheated on her, I guess, you know, in in that, in, in uh, Love Warrior, but her first one, Carry On Warrior, mm-hmm. that was just... That was just a run-of-the-mill memoir that was a mega bestseller. Anyway, my point is, um, I think with the memoir, there's got to be something about drawing out your your ability to draw lessons and themes. Um, and it, like you said, just it coming back to the writing to some degree that um, you can make any um, memoir a vehicle for change just with your writing, but I totally agree that the first ones that came to my mind were the big ones, E Pray Love, mm-hmm. Educated, Made, the ones that that combine an exceptional story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and maybe we're overestimating the word exceptional, you know, like we're just applying it to these mega bestsellers. Who's to say that your husband cheating on you isn't an exceptional story? You know, that, like that's what I was going to I was going to throw that out there too. Yeah, I I totally agree and I love your point about solving a problem. That's something yeah that I totally forgot to mention and is a big one for prescriptive nonfiction and if you go looking for an agent or a publisher they're they're all going to want to know that. What problem mm-hmm. do you solve for your audience? I never really thought about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really glad we're having this conversation about memoir specifically. I wonder if there's an element to where People are looking for, readers are looking for different things from a, again, what we would call a prescriptive nonfiction book. So a book that's mm-hmm. solving a problem of some kind, mm-hmm. prescribing a solution versus memoir, where when it comes to general prescriptive nonfiction, people are looking to the to the author to be some kind of authority on something. They're looking to you for a solution or to help them solve a problem. Whereas with, with memoir, it really kind of backfires when the author tries to present themselves as a hero or as kind of a larger than life person, because what we look for in memoir, a lot of times, at least what I look for is somebody who I can relate to as a person. So I'm, I'm reading Phil Collins's memoir right now, which is really good. Again, I'm a child of the eighties, you know, Phil Collins, I've always loved his music and I'm finding, I don't, the parts where he's talking about his big albums and his tours and all that stuff. 
it's interesting. I don't really relate to that on a human level. What I really do relate to are the passages where he talks about just being a normal kid and the stuff he went through as a kid and parents fighting and disagreeing with siblings and just like normal everyday stuff. So that's why I wonder if, if you have a, a book where um, let's go back to the, the example, well, a woman is talking about my husband cheated on me. I went through all this stuff, but yet I came out on the other side and here's what I learned. Like, I think a lot of, if, if you're a woman in a struggling marriage or who has been through that uh, kind of a situation, you're really going to relate to that. And she doesn't need to be a larger than life figure. It's like, I'm just telling my story and I don't know about everybody else, but I relate to people who have screwed up. They've made mistakes. They feel broken half the time. Sometimes they lack confidence, you know, yeah. I'm not supposed to say that on a podcast, but that's how I feel a lot of times. And I think if we're honest, all of us feel that way sometimes. That's yeah. the kind of people I relate to. So I, I wonder if, if people aren't generally looking for different, they're looking for something different from the author when it comes to memoir versus nonfiction. I also wonder if memoir is just by its, its nature, a much more subjective genre. Yeah, I think so. Because to be honest, I, I mean, I like being able to relate to the character, but I also like kind of the, the mental exercise of what would I do in an extraordinary circumstance like that part of the like brain, you know, the testing, testing it out and being like, huh, in an alternate reality, what if I had been born to a crazy family, you know, that was like preppers living somewhere in rural Idaho and I never went to school. How would that impact me? Would I have handled it the same way? What would I be not educated? Like I am now, you know, it's just, I, I do part of, and maybe this is just me. I like being able to kind of plug myself into that world to be like, huh, how would I respond to this kind of a Mm -hmm. situation if that were to happen to me? And maybe not everyone is like that, or maybe it's about the right book at the right time. Maybe, you know, when you are going through something hard, you do want to just find someone else who's been through that hard thing too, Mm -hmm. for that comfort and community and knowing that you're not alone. And there's, there's a place for that. Isn't that kind of mystery? Like why, why do certain books catch on at certain times? Yeah. And I think you know yeah. everybody in the publishing world would love to know the answer to that. So <laughs> like, I know Colleen Hoover is really huge right now and I don't really read. I know most of her readers are female. I don't read a lot of fiction to be honest with you. Um, but a friend of mine was like, oh, you got to read this book, Verity. The one that's really popular. It has like yes. 200,000 reviews on Amazon or some kind of crazy thing. I'm sure they'll turn on the movie. So I read it and I was like, it's kind of like a, a general thriller. I didn't think it was anything exceptional, nor did no. I think it was even light years beyond being well-written aside from a lot of other stuff. Uh, And that's no criticism at all. I mean, I enjoyed the book, but I was like, I don't really understand like why this is so immensely popular. And I I just wonder if if there are some times where something is not in in another decade, it it wouldn't have really stood out, but for whatever reason, sometimes things just catch fire Mm -hmm. and they catch people's attention and their imagination and it just catches on. Yeah. So you're talking about one of my, very favorite things and absolute like total hobby horse of mine is this like people who and it's hard like it's hard to talk about it without sounding offensive because I never mean to like I think Colleen Hoover is incredibly talented I never want to make it sound like I don't get it she's not that good you know that sort of thing but (laughs) looking into like her 
she is one of my obsessions and I like read the New York Times article about her and I like TikTok had a lot to do with her success. There's a lot going into it. And even right, Rachel Hollis, right. like I know Rachel Hollis is kind of controversial, but her book, you know, five, five years ago now that got really, really big that like when mm -hmm. you read it, you're kind of like, I mean, it's fine. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, like, is this the first draft of the book or? Right. Or, yeah. Know? And it just yeah. is so I enjoyed it. fascinating to me. These people who um, are able yeah, to gain this kind of, um, traction and, and yeah anyway there's a lot that goes into it but they're doing yeah. something right or they know their exactly. audience like i think one of exactly. the things is always that these people know their audience colleen hoover she knows who she writes for these women they don't just like her they are obsessed with her yes and that's part of part of the deal with this isn't it is you develop a following of people who love your yeah. stuff and like i'm that way with ryan holiday i'm a total yeah. ryan holiday fan oh boy. yeah all of us love his stuff. Yeah. That's actually where the daily writer thing came from. Is yeah. Literally. I ripped yeah. it off from the daily stoic because yeah. I was reading his book one day and I was like, okay, I listen to his podcast every day. I've got the book. Why isn't there something like this for writers? Then mm. you have that moment where you're like, oh crap, this means I have to <laughs> create this now. Yes. Yeah. And all of a sudden a light bulb went off, went off. I was like, oh my gosh, this is totally the kind of podcast I would listen to yeah. a short daily show for writers. That's how, that's where all this came from. I totally borrowed the concept from him. Yeah. I want to say something too, circling back so that I don't forget, because I want our memoirists to walk away with something kind of tactical as well. It, it is true that memoir is way more subjective, maybe the most subjective, maybe even more subjective than fiction, because there are ways to kind of measure story arcs and stuff. But memoir is, there's no structure. There's no set format. Um, I do want to say though, you know, if you want to test your memoir idea, it's harder to like throw spaghetti at the wall and like sling content in different forms. But one thing you can do that has launched the, the um, careers of many memoirists is try to get a portion of your story published somewhere. Like, you know, we we I mean, we can we recommend this for fiction. Um, pardon me, prescriptive nonfiction writers too, getting published somewhere about your idea, somewhere where people are going to see you and the more prestigious, the better. But memoirists can do this too. And it's one of your better options to see if your story has any legs, if the way that you're writing about it is compelling. Start submitting, you know, the most compelling piece of your story and with with lessons that you learned from it to different publications who who do stuff like that. Um, that's a really great way to get some validation mm -hmm. and something you can take to an agent or an editor when, you know, if, if you, if you manage to get published mm -hmm. somewhere big, it's, it's harder to test a memoir idea. That's true. But, but there are ways to, to get a credential that would, um, that would help you, you know, refine your idea and, and see if, if it'll work and, and, and get, catch the attention of, of an agent. if that's what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. One thing, and Liz, what you just brought up made me think of this. I, because I have some memoirists that I've been working with mm -hmm. who, when I've pitched that idea, have responded with, well, I don't want to, like, I don't want to preempt my idea. I don't want to put my idea out there. And then everyone goes, oh, well, now we know what happened to you. So we don't need a book. You know, you just told it in a, in an essay. So great. Now we have that for free and you don't need to write a book and we don't need to pay $30 for it. So I want to put that out there as, you know, how would we respond to that? But I think that the, a similar concern comes up for prescriptive nonfiction writers often too, which is, 
I don't want to put my idea out there too early and have someone steal it. So how Mm. do we, what do we think about that? Hmm. Yeah, I would say a couple things. Yeah. Number one, like I hear that a decent amount too, and it makes sense. Um, but especially for memoir, if you share part of your story and people really like it and resonate with it, they will want more of it. If you have more to say, they're going to want more of it. I don't think that you have to worry that like, this is what happened to, um, made the author of made whose, um, name I'm forgetting. Uh, what is it? Stephanie land, Stephanie land. Yes. She, a, a portion of her story got published on Vox and that's sort of how she gained some traction. And it was just about, you know, an overview kind of about her being raised in poverty and, and what it's like to try and overcome that. Um, and you know, she went on to write a, like expand it into a best-selling book and then it was turned into a Netflix series and you can read that article and be like, yeah, I got a pretty good idea of what happened at Stephanie land, but I like it and it's compelling. And now I want to know about all the homes that she cleaned and I want to know what her ex-husband was like. And I, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's always more to say if you say it well, people are going to want more. Same with prescriptive nonfiction. I mean, honestly, if you can say your whole idea in a blog post and there's not anything more to say about it, you don't have a book. So you mm. shouldn't write one. Fair point. Yeah. So, you know, if you have more to say, um, then people are going to want to hear it. And number two or whatever number I'm on, three, four, I don't know. If people do steal it, well, okay, then keep going, you know, and they're not going to say it like you and just trust the well of creativity within you that you can say it better than them. You can always come up with more content. And I think this fear, I'm sure it's happened to people out there. So I don't mean to undermine the, the horrible experience that is, but I think this fear is a little overblown. Like people seem to really worry about this and I don't don't hear about that happening very often, you know? Yeah. Ken, what do you think? Yeah, I think this this idea of people stealing stuff is completely I don't think you should worry about that at all. Yeah. Like I've found my stuff pirated on other like websites mm. and and stuff. It's like free and I don't even know how it gets there. It doesn't bother me a bit because I just look at it as free promo. Yeah. Because if you <laughs> I mean from a marketing standpoint, if you put stuff in your book that is leading people to your website through lead magnets or downloads or if you're promoing a podcast or other books, that's just free marketing. Yep. And mm-hmm. the vast majority of people are honest. And even if they can download your book for free somewhere, if if that's the kind of person that you want in your orbit, they're going to go buy a copy of it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I just, I don't worry about that at all. Yeah. And plus, how many books have been written about leadership? Let's say like one of the most common b- right. business book topics. Everybody has a different take on leadership and what that means. And if you take somebody like John Maxwell, who's one of my favorite authors, he's written... Well, actually, he doesn't write his own books. That's another story. He actually has a writer, um, which I love because he's way too busy to write his own books. He has a writer who does his own stuff. And they're fantastic. His writer's great. But he puts books out there constantly. And they're all basically around the ideas of personal growth or leadership. Occasionally, he'll write a book on a different topic, but they're almost all adjacent or directly on leadership or personal growth on some of some kind. And that's what he does. He just keeps putting out books and books and books. 
but it's they're all like a different angle on kind of the same topics and people eat it up and they love it because they love john maxwell and if people love you they're gonna continue to read your stuff even if it's on the same topic because all of us uh, this might be a lot of a little bit controversial but i really believe all of us only have like really two or three things to say (laughs) yeah i mean honestly yeah like there there's nobody who has like 15 really life-changing things they want to say we all if we're lucky we have like two or three messages that we're really excited about and that we can communicate well to people yeah i think if we're that lucky we should take advantage of it and we shouldn't try to to say 25 different things you know just say those two or three things and say them in a bunch of different ways say them Mm -hmm. in a lot of different forms like Mm -hmm. books blogs articles podcasts audiobooks speaking courses whatever and then just build on that because if people like those core things you're talking about they're going to come back to the well again and again and again i mean how, how many things does Stephen King write about? He writes basically about one thing, which is horror stories. Yeah. Sometimes they're not real scary. And sometimes he puts out something that's kind of out of left field. But that's just, I, I look at it as him just kind of working at his creative things. Mm-hmm. He has sometimes a one-off book he wants to put out there on something that's not a horror thing. And sometimes people love it. Yeah. So, but primarily he has like one kind of main thing that he does. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's why it takes the pressure off. They have their book and then they do the journal of that book. And then they do that book for teens and the workbook and then (laughs) volume two and volume three. And it's a whole series. And I love that. I think it's great. I love it when people put out series. Yeah. And I do think that if you can do that, that also shows that your idea is really meaty and it's really applicable in a lot of ways, which hopefully hopefully we are all writing books um that are applicable in in many different ways that's i think part of what makes the book timeless and perennial right yeah if it's good enough to write once it's good enough to write 10 more times right Mm -hmm. with some different twists okay on that note shall we shall we wrap it up thanks for having me on this has been a, a real pleasure and an honor yeah absolutely thanks so much kent it's we're just we we talk about you often with um with love and affection and oh that's just... really kind <laughs> i appreciate we, it well i also want to plug real quick the the daily writer club but also you have um an in person a retreat coming up soon do you want to talk about that real quick sure that is the daily writer retreat uh you know speaking of branding and using the same concept over and over again that's what i i guess i do um, it's called the Daily Writer Retreat. That is May 2nd through the 4th. That's a Tuesday night through Thursday evening. That is here in the St. Louis area. And there's more info at dailywriterlife.com slash retreat. The basic idea is this is a retreat for authors who want to get away for a couple of days, spend time in a small group with other people. Uh, at this particular retreat, we're going to be fo- going to be focusing on author foundations. So mm-hmm. that means what is your core message? What are some basic marketing things you can put into place? If you haven't yet written a book, we're going to be working on your book outline a little bit. So now the little secret of retreats, at least the way that I look at at them, is it's not just about the content or like the teaching stuff. It's really more about the connections that you make when you spend a couple of days in an intensive kind of a retreat with other people. Because I operate on the principle that collaboration is one of the really important keys as an author or as a creative person in general. 
So this is this is what I call a relaxed retreat. We don't go and go and go from eight in the morning till 10 at night. We take a lot of breaks. It's very chill. Uh, it's a small group of people. We have a lot of coffee and we have good <laughs> food. So uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. So they can go to dailywriterlife.com slash retreat uh, if anyone's interested. Perfect place to test out your possible ideas. Yes. And that is one of the reasons that I do retreats. Um, as an introvert, by the time retreats are over, I'm like, okay, I need to spend some time alone for a couple of days, <laughs> but I really love it. And retreats and things like that are a great way to test out concepts, to see what people are struggling with and just to really dig into people's books and their businesses. I, I love retreats. I think they're amazing. Thanks for being part of the hungry authors community. If you like this episode, could you do us a huge favor? Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We would so appreciate it. You can also follow us on Instagram at Hungry Authors or HungryAuthors.com, our website, to get more information about our masterclasses and upcoming episodes. Remember that you have a story and a message worth publishing. And if you've got the hunger, you can make it happen. Mm-hmm.